Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about times writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Cullen. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And on this month's Paper Scraps, we'll be discussing pitching with a script and pivoting towards a screenwriting career, as well as talking about the latest TV writing news, including productions halting in LA and pilot season during a pandemic. Let's get started. <laughs> All right, well, first up, we have some big paper team news that is unfortunately uh, sad news. Our longtime editor, Alex Switzky, will be moving on to Greener Pastures. He will no longer be editing for the podcast after the next couple of episodes. So we just wanted to take the time to really give a big, huge, heartfelt thanks to Alex for all of his hard work over the last many years, making us sound better than we actually do, uh, putting up with uh, <laughs> hours of unedited content of Alex and I talking. I imagine it's no easy feat, so... Uh, thank you so, so much. We couldn't have done this without you. And uh, best of luck with your future endeavors. Absolutely. He's uh, essentially the third man of this. The two, two man operation is really the third man. You might have seen him in our 200th episode. Uh, he, for the first time, went on mic and on camera during the live stream. So we really want to thank him. He's been with us since the very early days, at least the double digit numbers of uh, Paper Team episodes. So we really appreciate all the work that he's put in to make us sound good. And uh, I'm sure all our listeners appreciate us getting edited as opposed to just <laughs> rambling. Absolutely. If you happen to see him on Twitter or anywhere else, give him a shout. But uh, yeah, best of luck, Alex. Best of luck. All right, let's uh, look at some Twitter shoutouts that we got, especially over the holidays. It's been an interesting lockdown holiday, obviously, but we did get several tweets. The first tweet we got was from William Takeover, who said, uh, nearly a year ago, a close friend challenged him to write out a haunting personal experience into a movie screenplay. Then from there, he had to turn that into a TV pilot script, and he went and found a lot of great information from podcasts that taught him so much in a short period of time. And he gave a big thanks to, uh, on the page, John August, Craig Mazin, Screenwriters Rant Room, Hilliard, uh, the two of us for Paper Team, Indie Film Hustle, he said, keep up the great work. So uh, thank you very much, William. We appreciate that we were helpful in your screenwriting journey. And our next tweet is from Michael Hager, who's a longtime listener of the podcast and Patreon supporter. And he responded to a thread asking for recommendations of podcasts. And he did mention Paper Team, especially if you are into TV writing. Paper Team is informative and entertaining with TV calling and underscoring J. Watson. Plus, they give writers notes on our opening pages. Absolutely. Thank you, Michael. And the next tweet we got was from Kiki, who replied to somebody asking for their favorite craft resource for screenwriting. And Kiki said that I listen to a lot of podcasts. My top three favorites are Screenwriters Rant Room, On the Page, and the Paper Team podcast by TV Calling and NJ Watson. So thank you very much for the shout out there. We are amongst good company. All right, let's dig into your own TV writing questions. And as a reminder, if you have the writing questions, you can always send them to ask at babyteam.co to get answers on this very podcast. And the first one comes from Mustafa, who asks, quote, Hi, I've read on pitching a pilot, and I have a related question. Say I'm going to pitch through email first before getting the pitch meeting. Is it better to send the full script along with the show Bible, or just the show Bible slash concept idea logline? Will that do the job? I'm asking this because of the script protection and the copyright, even though it's WGA registered. Any thoughts on this from experiences would be great. Thank you. Uh, yeah, thank you for the question, Mustafa. I would say that's kind of a two-part answer there. The first one is regarding what you should send when you're going to be pitching uh, your stuff to people. And the second one is regarding kind of copyright and protections and how you can go about making sure your script is protected. To answer the first one, a lot of this depends on context. Are you pitching this cold to somebody? Or have you found somebody's email who's a manager, an agent, or an executive, and you're just trying to kind of get your material in front of them? 
I would recommend neither. I wouldn't send a script or a Bible uh, at that very early stage. I would recommend taking a listen to PT-121, our Networking 201 Cold Contact Queries and Etiquette episode, where we go over a pretty in-depth accounting of how to actually reach out to people that you don't know, how to introduce yourself, how to kind of pitch yourself as a writer, and maybe a logline to one of your ideas. That's as far as I would go. If you are pitching to somebody who is already interested in your work, and they've said, send me your stuff, and they've kind of left it vague, then it's kind of up to you at that point. Again, it depends on the context. If you're trying to sell an entire TV series or something, you might want your Bible and your script in there. If it's for a manager, maybe you just want to send your script as a writing sample, that kind of thing. So this is one of those questions that's a little bit hard to answer without knowing the full context. Right, exactly. It's hard to be prescriptive and give a general advice on that. I will definitely echo Nick's mention of that episode. A lot of practical, chock-full advice on cold queries and uh, actionable ways of framing that show that you want to pitch or submit to people who may not be familiar with you or that show. And much like what Nick said, especially on the onset, when you're just trying to get the idea known and in a way yourself known, uh, less is more in that capacity because these people are already buried in scripts. They don't need another script that they probably will not read, especially if it is not solicited. If it is solicited, then by all means, of course. But if it is not solicited, then you need to get that foot in the door. And that usually means teasing the idea, teasing yourself. Or And by teasing, I don't mean withholding information. I just mean getting enough information across that they want to read more of that content, uh, whether that's your uh, Bible, whether that's your script, or whatever format you're trying to sell this thing as. Uh, now, the next step, as Nick also mentioned, if they are asking for material, I usually err on the side of, a, especially if you do have a script, then usually a script for a show is going to be much more evocative than a Bible, unless, I mean, this is going to go into the protection thing in a second, but Bible content, usually I'm on the fence about submitting, whether through my reps or by other means, just because it's less of a sell of what the show executed would be. And also, if you are trying to get a show sold in that capacity and you do have a spec script of the pilot, then those people will at some point read the script. So the script and the pilot, assuming it is well executed as it should be, will be probably a better calling card than the Bible. Now that doesn't mean you shouldn't submit some sort of like one pager if it is needed and so forth, but presumably a lot of it I would have said uh, is in person, obviously not now, but even virtually there's ways of pitching the content of that Bible without necessarily giving that document away. I feel like a lot of this is proprietary to you and only maybe a script should be given in specific uh, capacities. Yeah, you don't want to overload people with material, whether they have asked for it or not, especially if they haven't asked for it. But even if they have asked to see something of yours, you don't want to just suddenly throw out your top three scripts and a feature and a Bible and that kind of thing that's going to overwhelm people. So go step by step. You know, once they're interested in the logline, then and they ask to read it or they're interested to see more, that's when you can look at sending them a script, that kind of thing. But certainly don't just kind of email out a bunch of emails with your script attached because that's kind of bad form. Right. Right. It is very important to that point to be strategic about what you're submitting and at what point. Even in the case where they are asking you for a sample and so forth, if they are specifically asking for a sample, usually nine times out of ten, that doesn't mean a script, that doesn't mean a Bible. But that said, if you're just trying to get across the general concept of the show and they're interested in learning a bit more about the show specifically, then perhaps then a two-pager or three-pager or something like that would be more welcome than a script. Again, a lot of it also comes down to communication. It doesn't hurt to ask, point blank. What are you expecting me to send you or a version of that? That's a bit nicer, obviously, but uh, you can always ask your reps. I mean, your reps are usually going to be 
the vehicle between you and that person that you're submitting things to. But if you're submitting to that person directly, it doesn't really hurt to ask them or people you know who've worked with them so that they have an idea of what they're expecting. Yeah, a Bible is really only something that you would typically send when somebody has already read your pilot, liked it a lot, and they want to know more about this series and they potentially want to turn it into a pitch to take to places or that kind of thing. So that's when the Bible is helpful to have there. But uh, it's not the kind of thing that you just kind of spam out to people because it really is a lot more in-depth and requires already that engaged interest. Now to the second part of the question regarding script protection and copyright. This is something that a lot of writers worry about way too much for what it actually entails and for the risk that it actually poses, which is almost none. No one is out there trying to steal your ideas. No one is out there trying to steal your scripts from whole cloth and pass them off as their own. Sure, register it with WGA. If it makes you feel better, you can register with the copyright office. But outside of some very specific situations like working with, say, a writing partner and who's taking credit for a particular thing that you've written, I don't think that any of that is going to come in to play at all. Right. We actually did a whole episode just about that topic called protecting and overprotecting your TV script. That was PT23, where we tackled the definition of copyright and what it actually does, practically speaking. If we're being honest, the WGA West registry doesn't hold that much weight, especially if we're talking legally speaking. What really holds more weight is the copyright office. So if you are submitting a script and this is much more, you know, for your own sanity than truly genuine theft reason, but if you do want to copyright your script or protect it, then the copyright office is usually the way to go. And honestly, you can just do one draft of it and that hopefully should be enough. Not many people are going to be stealing your ideas. That's a misnomer in this industry and not something that's basically a myth that we've also tackled many times on this podcast. The fact that people are not interested in ideas, they're interested in execution and if they're interested in your script, then it's much simpler for them to purchase that script from you and then get someone else to rewrite it if they don't want to work with you, as opposed to hiring someone to essentially copy your idea and then have the liability of meeting with you and you potentially suing them. It doesn't make any legal sense or any practical sense for them to do that. So uh, again, if you are going to protect your uh, work, definitely do that for a screenplay if you're going to be submitting it, uh, but under the understanding that it's mostly for your own protection and your own peace of mind, as opposed to something that will practically have an impact because people are stealing your content. Yeah. In summary, Mustafa, take it one step at a time, see if people are interested, and then send them what they ask for. And uh, don't worry too much about anyone stealing your script. All right, let's move on to our next question from Embe, who sent us this email saying, hey, Paper Team. I came across your website slash podcast through an internet search on pilots, and it has been an invaluable source of information. Back in my late 20s, I decided I wanted to pursue my lifelong writing dreams. I wrote a screenplay about my life, and it ended up winning a Disney Screenwriting Fellowship back when they still had the feature writing program. Unfortunately, I was not able to leverage that win into a career, and as a struggling single mom, eventually pursued a more stable career field. Even still, I never lost sight of my writing dreams and pivoted to working on a memoir. My thought was, if I ever came back to screenwriting, it would be on the success of my book sales. Recently, I was introduced to some TV writers who suggested writing an original pilot, which I was especially interested in doing after watching incredible shows like I May Destroy You and Undone. Working on this pilot also reminded me how much I love screenwriting and despise prose. However, after listening to your podcast, I'm wondering if this is an effort that is worth my time since I will not be able to sell the pilot as a new writer and cannot see myself switching to such an unstable career field when I have a young child with special needs and no local family to support us. 
As two guys, I know you probably cannot comment on the single mom aspect of working in TV, but I am wondering if you can comment on the age in this field. I also want to point out that I am not someone easily dissuaded by the seemingly impossible, but I am a bit more cautious. Thank you. Well, thank you for this amazing, wonderful email. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, absolutely, that's a very real concern. A lot of people are in a similar situation. You know, it is an unstable industry and it is difficult to kind of uh, support a family based on screenwriting income and all that sort of stuff alone. So I'd say your concerns are founded in some ways. And in other ways, like you said, I I wouldn't be discouraged because there are always multiple avenues and pathways through to getting into the industry. It doesn't just happen from selling a TV show and becoming a creator and kind of hoping that you hit that lottery. We actually took, you know, a bit of a more in-depth look at this in a PT92, breaking in as a TV writer later in life featuring Jay Haltham. Jay was a playwright. He had done a number of other things, was living in New York, and it wasn't until his 40s that he actually came and started to break into TV. So uh, it is entirely possible for that to happen, and it happens honestly more frequently than you might expect. Another thing to mention is something that you have, which is your own story, your own journey, which you've transformed into an IP by uh, working on that memoir. Now, I'm not quite sure if it was published uh, and if it was published, how successful it was, but assuming it was published, even some level of success or at least some history behind it, then you can at least package it in such a way that you can transform that into your pilot. And when you're trying to sell something, then you have that backstory, especially because as you mentioned at the top, you even wrote a screenplay, a feature film, presumably about your life story. And that won a fellowship. So even though it was all these years ago, I still feel it is valuable to look at what you've created and leverage that even to this day, even uh, by transforming it into all those different things. Look at something like Fleabag. Fleabag started as a one-act play, as a monologue, essentially, in a very niche fringe festival in the UK. And then that got into, that became a TV show, then uh, that escalated into uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's whole career. But that started as a play, Uh, that was loosely based on her own experiences and personal trauma. But uh, that is something to look out for. Essentially using your story, using all the tools that you have to create an IP, to create a packaging that makes what you're doing next valuable. And so those are the other ways you can leverage what you already have to start building that career and potentially pilot sale. Yeah, exactly. Those are all great points. And I think that, you know, compared to a lot of people who might be looking to break into TV writing starting from nothing, you're already off to a really great start by having previously had that success from the Disney Screenwriting Fellowship uh, to put on your resume. You have that sample already of your writing. It sounds like you've been writing pilots as well. You know, you have the tools that you need. And apparently, you know, as well, you also seem to have the skills that you need. Uh, already established to succeed in the industry. At this point, it's just opportunity. And so I would recommend perhaps the best course of action from here would be to try to attract uh, potentially a manager to be looking at your stuff, to be then putting it out into the industry, even if you're not living in LA, starting to get that attention. Uh, these days, you can take meetings over Zoom and Skype and whatever, just like everybody else. And that so that physical distance is really no barrier to you starting to make your way into the industry. Exactly. And presumably because you already wrote a feature by yourself and a memoir, uh, you're already have an idea how to sell yourself. You already have an idea of, you know, the story, the narrative that you want people to have about you. And so you can use that to sell yourself to those reps and even for staffing. I mean, staffing is in a way, in theory, at least a much more stable career than selling pilots. And so there's definitely a way in with that experience that you bring to the table that is unique to you. And that was already vetted by other people in this industry, regardless of the time. And just to go back to my prior example, I was looking up information on I May Destroy You and I May Destroy You, Michaela Cole also did a, I don't know if it was a play, but it was definitely a lecture at least at the Edinburgh 
festival Fringe then ultimately became the show. So that's another example. I mean, obviously all those are UK examples and very niche, but nonetheless, in America, you have the opportunity to do other things, to platform your story into something that can then become something else that people want to have. And if you can package that for yourself, then you can also get the reps that Nick mentioned and you can potentially get staffed in some capacity and that's potentially a more stable career than just selling that one pile. Yeah. And the last thing I wanted to mention about this is you kind of talk about switching into an unstable career. And, you know, it's such a gradual thing for so many people. It's not like you just decide one day I'm going to be a professional TV writer and you quit your job and that's all you ever focus on ever again. I think for most people, it's a gradual process of getting jobs that are close to or related in the field, starting to get their writing notice, starting to get their stuff out there, maybe getting a freelance script, getting on staff once, then maybe not working again for a bit and trying to find that next staff job or that next thing. And so there's rarely a point where you've just kind of said, yes, okay, I am now a professional TV writer and this is all I do. You know, there are some very lucky people that do manage to go from job to job and build up their career in that way. But I would say that a lot of the rest of the kind of working writers out there in the world are having to also do other jobs to supplement that. They're having to kind of go back and forth and do that kind of thing. So don't feel like it's an all or nothing kind of thing. You can be a working writer while also sustaining yourself in other ways. Right. And that is up to you to decide what is worth it and what isn't. The pay rate of, for example, being an assistant may not make sense for you, or especially in terms of a career level, but maybe you can still do your day job or find some financial support while you take those meetings, while you try to get a rep, while you try to get staffing meetings and so forth. And it doesn't have to be that all or nothing mentality where you have to move to LA, et cetera, et cetera, assuming you're not in LA yet. But because of COVID, because of the work from home situation, you can take those meetings remotely. Now you can at least do some of that legwork, even if it's remote and now more than ever, in fact. So use those opportunities to at least put yourself out there and use what you already have to pitch yourself and strategically find the people that you feel are best representative of you or who can represent you best. And maybe you can be strategic about if you are looking at staff at places you want to target, and if you're being strategic about selling, then the places that are best suited for your pilot. All right, now looking at some TV news that has cropped up in the last little while since our previous paper scraps. One thing that really kind of shook the industry at large was the news that HBO Max would be releasing theatrical films same day as theater releases onto their HBO Max streaming service. This actually prompted quite a bit of outrage from filmmakers that weren't aware that their films were going to be released simultaneously online as well as in theaters and uh, just kind of really shook everybody up because it's such a huge difference in the usual kind of 90-day window model that they had been adhering to. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this develops, especially, I mean, I'm thinking about France and Europe because France in particular in terms of releasing schedule is very stringent, uh, much more than in the U.S. It's very particular about the amount of time that needs to happen before a movie exits theaters and enters uh, VOD or DTV or home cinema and so forth and DVD sales. Whereas here, it's slightly more malleable. But I'm sure there's a lot of discussion that is happening in terms of the contracts that those producers, those directors, those screenwriters, those movie makers made with Warner Brothers, HBO, and all those places in terms of distribution exclusives. So, I mean, the dam has burst a little bit because we've just got Wonder Woman uh, 1984. We got a bunch of movies. So we'll see how things develop this year, especially because presumably HBO Max is the, the major platform where this is happening, putting aside Netflix, obviously. But I'm sure other studios are going to follow suit, especially at the point where they will have their own distribution outlet similar to HBO Max. Yeah, it's one of those things where the first domino has 
has now fallen, so everybody else is probably going to have to adjust to that. Otherwise, HBO Max will end up having kind of a big competitive advantage over them. You know, but it has raised a lot of questions about is this the end of theatrical movie distribution? Are people even going to go back to the movies after the pandemic? And are we even giving them a reason to if everything can just be streamed online at home anyway? Some people might argue that this was the way everything was heading and the pandemic just kind of hastened it anyway. But it is uh, really a turning point for the entire industry. And, uh, you know, it obviously has implications for television too, because there are so many TV shows being offered up on this service as well. You know, is it going to bring a lot more money in that can then go into the TV industry? Uh, is it going to really create this new kind of level of the streaming services are going to eclipse any traditional television networks that are airing as well? So uh, a lot of questions now. Yeah. I mean, I, I think for me, the final nail will be when they pull a Quibi and then you can watch those movies only on the vertical screen. And uh, that's how you can enjoy the movie experience on your phone. That would be terrible. Uh, well, tangentially to the HBO Max experience that we just spoke about, uh, there's another news that happened regarding HBO Max, and that's them announcing that they're planning original DC content for international markets. Uh, this is something that really interests me in particular because a lot of OTT platforms expanding internationally, namely Netflix, or Amazon, they don't really have IP per se. They have their IP as in, you know, they buy a book and then they make a show of it, but they don't really have American IP that they are specifically doing for international markets. Whereas HBO Max and Warner Brothers and so forth, they're taking essentially American IP, DC Comics is American, and then translating that to local adaptations on international markets. So presumably you could have a French TV show of a French superhero, but from an American comic, which is kind of surreal. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I, I hadn't heard much about that. I know that a number of streaming services, like for example, Netflix, invest heavily in local content in different areas that they're placed. They've been putting a lot of money into, say, Australian content to be released within Australia and that kind of way. So it's interesting to see this is now kind of going out to these big comic brands and things like that as well to be doing their own versions of international IP. Yeah, it would be really cool to see like an international Justice League. I'm sure that's where we're headed. Those kinds of uh, huge shows that have an international cast, especially in Europe, I can easily see some sort of uh, kind of like what they did with Defenders and, and so forth, where you have like one major superhero per European country, and then they, this is a sort of like a spin-off, a crossover event with all of them. Yeah. I mean, I think it's something that a lot of people, particularly living in the US, don't really consider is there is the rest of the world out there. You know, there are all of these shows and content that's kind of going on in the rest of the world in the same way that we kind of take international formats and remake them here or vice versa. So I think we are increasingly seeing with streaming services, this normalization of global content, and we're getting a lot of K-dramas and everything on Netflix now that people are watching and realizing just how good uh, the quality of content from around the world is. Yeah. I mean, to me, what's most fascinating about this is they're taking what is American IP and doing it internationally as opposed to, you know, remaking an American show on a local market. So to go back to your Korean example, if they made a K-drama off of a DC comic superhero, and it would not be a remake, it would be an original DC comic superhero show in Korea, that would be kind of crazy. And I'm sure that's where we're heading. So that's going to be cool to see. Absolutely. All right. And uh, the next piece of TV news on a sad note, the final episode of Jeopardy that Alex Trebek hosted has now aired on TV, kind of bringing that era to an end. I think that Jeopardy and Alex Trebek himself have a special place in a lot of people's hearts. And uh, quite a sad thing to have happened. We had a few friends that were just recently on Jeopardy. Uh, Alex Switsky, our now former editor, Frankie Butler, who was also on the podcast, uh, was on Jeopardy too, not long before all this happened. So a little note for TV history. Absolutely. There uh, have been quite a few interesting articles 
article I was supposed to do about Alex Trebek recently. Uh, I will link in the show notes a really cool New Yorker article about, uh, quote, the hidden depths of Alex Trebek's banter with Jeopardy contestants. There's a whole lot of conversation about that online. And uh, really, I mean, it's the end of an era. I'm a huge uh, game show person. So to me, this uh, hit especially hard. I will be really interested in seeing who the next hosts are. I know they're doing kind of what they did with the last season of The Office, where they're bringing in like a new host every episode or a new person, the lead uh, character essentially every week. I know Katie Couric is one of the first people on, and I'm sure at some point they're going to have obviously the Jeopardy goats on it, despite them also being on The Chase, which uh, I saw and it was fine. It wasn't as amazing as the UK version, but they did do a tribute to Alex Trebek at the beginning of The Chase. Awesome. I have to check that one out. All right. And for our last piece of TV news, uh, keeping on the kind of downer track that we usually <laughs> seem to do on these things. I mean, look, news is, is almost inherently um, sometimes sad or earth shaking in some way. And that's what makes it news. So these two things we wanted to mention were a letter that went out from SAG-AFTRA and PGA, the Producers Guild, essentially saying that they wanted to shut down all TV and film production in Southern California while the COVID pandemic continues to rage at its worst levels in history uh, in the world in LA. And they're recommending that none of their union members work on any productions at this time for safety reasons. And I think that makes quite a lot of sense. It does really make sense, especially that we're hitting, uh, I was going to say the third wave, but if we're being honest here, it's always been the first wave. We never really went down in LA or the US. But nonetheless, it is something we've talked a lot about, just the fact that Safety needs to be held accountable, and especially with the lower levels, especially with actual productions. You have so many people who are paid so little to do so much, and yet their safety is not fully taken into account a lot of the time. Uh, now, I will say that I hope, you know, this is not really the American way, really, but I do hope there's some sort of compensation, especially if we're moving towards shutting down production and so forth, that the unions, and I'm sure they're already working on it. I know the unions working on helping their members through this crisis. So I'm sure that was part of the deal with the SAG after and PG and so forth just raising awareness for and the strain that it puts on production, especially now that we are still in the middle of this huge wave. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously there's some optimism to be had about the new incoming president who might be more willing to um, give regular support payments of actual livable amount to everybody or universal basic income type thing until we get ourselves out of the situation. So fingers crossed, but uh, tied into all of these issues are the pilot season coming up again. You know, last year's pilot season was already shut down due to COVID and kind of had to stop halfway through. Some places were able to finish, some weren't, which led to a lot of shuffling going around. And now we're coming in quite quickly again to this pilot season. You know, stuff is still being developed as it's come through. They have a lot of pilots. They've ordered, they have scripts, they have things that they need to shoot. A lot of them come with quite big penalties. If you're not familiar with what that is, essentially when a network wants something so bad over its competitors, they are willing to assign a penalty to that. And they say, if we do not make this pilot, we will pay you however much money because we're so sure that we're going to make it and it's going to be great. So if these things don't happen uh, due to COVID, then uh, maybe they have to start paying out these penalties. Maybe these shows go into turnaround. Other places might snap them up. We just don't know what's going to happen in terms of what's realistic for production. Right. In the same way that we talked about moments ago, the theatrical window release uh, being compromised or jeopardized with the pandemic, I'm really curious to see how pilot season is going to evolve with this pandemic and after the pandemic, because as uh, we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast, and something I am seeing firsthand more and more is that most of those pilots, most of those shows being picked up, 80% of those are from the same dozen 
super EPs and super producers. So because of those penalties, they're paying so much money now more than ever to get exclusive rights to something that may never happen now, that may never be produced. So it's almost wasted money. And it goes to the same dozen of, you know, super EPs as opposed to really writers and opening opportunities from the ground up and so forth. And so I do believe, or at least I hope that this system is going to be put into question about what exactly is being picked up and from whom. Uh, Now, my skeptical side, says uh, it's going to be the same old, same old, and it's always going to be that. But nonetheless, uh, putting aside also the fact that, you know, half of the pilots are just the reboots and uh, spinoffs and remakes or whatever, but just in terms of who's actually producing those shows, who's getting those shows made, it's always kind of the same people. And because there's so much content that's being sold and bought, but practically speaking, there's not an equal amount of opportunities that are being open in actual writers' rooms. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it kind of calls into question a little bit, like you said, these big super EPs and uh, the big kind of big money pods that different studios are handing out production overall deals to uh, these writers and producers. You know, they've essentially sunk that money into these folks to generate content, and it's now content that they can't make. So I do wonder, you know, we were certainly trending so much in the direction of throw as much money as possible at the biggest names in the industry and try to secure them for your own property. I wonder if, like you say, if we will maybe start to see a little bit more of a egalitarian system again after this when studios are a little bit more careful with their finances and risk averse into paying off these giant super deals that they might not be able to do as much with as they used to. Or they'll create another version of Quibi and throw even more money uh, in the Super EP. Yeah. That's uh, two Quibi references in 2021 for this (laughs) game. It's going to be like the Betamax of uh, of our generation. All right. Well, don't forget that we are on Patreon. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Paper Team via our Patreon page at paperteam.co slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You'll get exclusive content, opportunities, and merch, and we'll keep producing a great show for you every week. Thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 205. As always, I'm on Twitter at TVCalling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have TV running questions or thoughts that you want answered or talked about on this very podcast, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. That's C-O. And what are we doing next week? And next week, we are going to be wrapping up our mentorship series with Ben Warner uh, by taking a look at kind of strategy. Want now that he's got this great pilot. Uh, how do we get it out into the world? What's next for him? So tune in if you're curious what to do once you've written a great pilot. Absolutely. And we will see you next week. We'll see you then.